Today is on missions. Draw near through missions. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, the Apostle Paul writes by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, For the love of Christ constraineth me, constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then were all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we come to you this morning desiring to draw near to you, excited about hearing your voice through your word, knowing, Lord, that we have divine revelation before us and that we have your heart and your mind on this matter of missions. Father, I pray that through the supernatural transaction of your Holy Spirit that it would be imparted to us that we, Lord, would adopt the same mindset that you have for missions. May we see, Lord, how urgent and essential it is. And may we realize that we each have a part to play in this. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're going to turn our attention to missions uh, because it is the time of year that Southern Baptists everywhere unite in a week of prayer for international missions. Out of our churches across America and across the world, there are over 47,000 Southern Baptist churches. And this week, we commit to come together and pray for missions. You should have received a little prayer guide in the mail this week. If not, you can pick one up at the Connect desk. Uh, but this is a guide to guide your prayers each day. As you and I think about it, we need to understand that there are over 3,600 Southern Baptist missionaries on the foreign field. And that while we have a great mechanism for training and getting them there, and we have a wonderful financial pipeline that helps pay their bills, we can do nothing without the power of God. And this week of prayer, I cannot overemphasize how important it is. And so I would like to ask you to take one of these guides. If you don't have one at home, pick one up on your way out. And to commit to praying for international missions this week. I want to also 
uh, ask you to pray about what God would have you to give in our annual Christmas offering for international missions. While we pray and understand that only God can move the heart of the lost to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, we also must understand that God wants to do a work in your heart and in my heart, and that is to support missions, to give of what God has given to us. You may not realize it, but as Southern Baptists, we have one of the greatest missions programs in all of Christianity. We have the largest missionary force in evangelicalism, and we are the envy of many other denominations in this program that we have developed. Through our denomination, we have these 47,000 churches and each and every week, pastors stand up and proclaim the word. And along with that, they call out those who are called to missions. This is where our missionaries come from. They are not made and produced in seminaries. They are made and produced in local churches just like ours. Where God's Holy Spirit works in the heart of some man or some woman and convicts them and compels them to give their life to missions. And they answer that call. That happens every single week in our churches. And then through our Southern Baptist seminaries and Bible colleges, we are able to train those missionaries. In fact, our seminaries are so good at theological education that even though Southern Baptists only make up 11% of the churches in the United States, we train over a third of all the seminarians in the country. So that means that not only do Southern Baptists go to Southern Baptist seminaries, but so do many other denominations because they get a solid theological education there. And then through our International Mission Board, we send out over 3,600 missionaries to different countries of the world. Our International Mission Board is located in our state, the state of Virginia, in the Richmond area. There is an international training center where every God-called missionary who has uh, received theological training then goes and is, uh, is uh, put through the requirements uh, that are laid out for them to go to the mission field. They are prepared for the culture shock that will come when they leave their native land and immerse themselves in a foreign country where the customs are different and the language is different. Uh, there is a network of missionaries who are already on the field so that new missionaries who are leaving our shores and going to a foreign country are not alone, but they are put in partnership with missionaries who have already been there who can help them and encourage them and guide them and support them. Our International Mission Board is the recipient of all Southern Baptist missionary dollars for international missions so that we have the funding to send these missionaries directly to the field. They don't have to travel around from church to church raising support and trying to get enough money. We have developed a cooperative program and an offering that funds that. And through this annual Christmas offering, we fund these missionaries to go reach the world with the gospel. We can't all go, but we can all give. And we do that so that those who are called can go. 
I want you this month, as you pray for missions, to pray about what God would have you to give. Because this is not just another offering. This is not just a tradition. This is not money to go support some administrative staff somewhere. This is money that gets missionaries with the gospel to the field where they can reach lost souls for Jesus Christ. You say, why should I consider giving in this offering? I mean, Justin, there are so many demands on my budget already. Uh, my, I'm stretching my dollar as far as it goes. Why would I consider giving to missions? I would just remind you of this. Missions is the mission of the church. That's what we're here for. That's why God didn't take you out the day he saved you, but he left you here as part of the body of Christ because there is a mission that is to be completed. It is the mission that Jesus began when he came to this earth. It is the mission that Jesus laid his life down for to secure salvation. And it is the mission that he assigned to the church to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. I would go on to say that missions is the responsibility of every Christian. It's not enough to be a member of a missionary-minded church. It's not enough to say, hey, great, I'm in a Southern Baptist church and there's 47,000 Southern Baptist churches and they give millions of dollars to missions. All right, I'm on the right side. No, you have to take personal responsibility because that's where God placed it. He didn't just give it to an organization. He gave it to individuals. Every Christian has a responsibility to get the gospel to the world. And then I would also say this by way of introduction, missions is the ministry of drawing lost people near to God. Right? That's what we've been talking about all year. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And by God's grace, somebody shared the gospel with you so that you could get saved and begin this relationship with God so that you can draw near and live near to God. But there are multiplied billions of people out there on planet Earth who are far from God because they are not saved, many of whom have never heard a clear gospel presentation and they are not able to draw near to God. God because how shall they call on the name of the Lord unless they have a preacher and how shall they preach unless they be sent it is the job of those who are near to make sure that others can draw near that is what missions is about as we experience this joyful benefit of drawing near to God we can't help but want others to experience it too if Christ has changed your life and he has impacted your life in such a way that you understand and enjoy the benefits of salvation, there has to be something that stirs inside of you that says, I want this for others too. I want this for the people in my family. I want this for the people in my community. I want this for the people I work with. And I want this for the world. I want the nations to be glad. I want the nations to experience the health of God's saving power. I want the nations to all praise the name of Jesus. And it can only happen through missions. In fact, I would say to you, it is how God designed it to be. That when you and I draw near to God in salvation, that he does a work inside of us that wants to help other people draw near. This new way of life on mission is described for us in the text that we just read. What the Apostle Paul describes 
is the new life that he has. It's not the old life. Remember, we read about Paul's old life in Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 9. In his old life, he didn't think that anybody should follow Christ. In his old life, he tried to persecute the church. In his old life, he was pursuing his own selfish ambitions. But he met Jesus in Acts chapter 9 on the way to Damascus. And it changed his life and it gave him a new life. And from that day forward, instead of being an opponent, of the gospel he comes a proponent of the gospel and he begins to preach Jesus everywhere he goes and he gives the rest of his life to that and in 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 he's trying to pass on to other Christians what he got and that is this passion for living life on mission which is getting the gospel to all of the world we begin as a new creation in Christ Here is the pivot point. It is found in verse 17. It is the central verse to this text. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Think about that. What Paul is describing here is a personal salvation experience. And that is the only way you can experience salvation. You cannot claim to be saved simply because you come from a Christian family. You cannot claim to be saved simply because you come from a Christian background. You cannot claim to be saved simply because you attended or attend a Christian church. The only way that you can claim to be saved is if you've had a personal experience of salvation whereby you realize that you are a sinner separated from God And that you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection to reconcile you to God. It requires a personal salvation experience. And while we come into that state of faith not knowing everything about salvation, just knowing that we trust Jesus and Jesus alone, the Bible says something miraculous happens, something wonderful happens. Jesus described it as a new birth, and Paul says that we are new creatures in Christ. Get a load of that. He didn't say you just got a makeover. Oh, I like makeovers. I used to watch those makeover shows. Yeah, they were fun, weren't they? Sometimes they would make over people and people who didn't know how to dress very well. And I always thought I could have been host one of those shows, not be a candidate for one, because I got a little bit of fashion sense to me. But I love the makeover shows. I, I like the home makeover show. Remember, they would come in and like in a week, they would like make over the home. You'd be like, wow, that is amazing. Let me tell you something. Jesus doesn't do a makeover on you. He makes you a new creature a new creation I'm telling you it is more than just some spackle and paint on the outside it is a complete recreation on the inside just to frame it out for you just remember when God created man he created him with three parts body soul and spirit 
With our body, we relate to the world. With our soul, we can relate to one another. That's where our personality is. Uh, And with our spirit, we can relate to God. When Adam and Eve sinned, God said, In the day that you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. Their body didn't die because they still interacted with the world around them. They made their aprons of fig leaves. Their soul didn't die because Adam and Eve still interacted with each other. Their personality was there. Well, the part that died was their spirit. When God came to fellowship with them, they were hiding from him. And so mankind's true created design was distorted and destroyed in the fall. And that is why Jesus in John chapter 3 said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, huh? What do you mean born again? How can I go back into my mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus says, no, you're thinking about physical birth. I'm talking about spiritual birth. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. You must be born again, spiritually speaking. And when you and I put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we go from being just two-part beings, body and soul, to becoming three-part beings, restored to our original created design, body, soul, and spirit, so that we now, have this connection back to God that had been severed by sin. And so I'm telling you, when you get born again, it's not just you deciding to change some things. It's not just you reforming yourself. It's not just you turning over a new leaf. It is you getting born again by the Holy Spirit of God, God coming to live inside of you and making you a brand new creature. You're not the same person you used to be before you got saved. In fact, the Apostle Paul describes it as a life-altering transformation. Uh, Read with me again, verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ. Notice that you have to be in Christ. We're not naturally in Christ. We are aliens from Christ. When we put our faith in Christ, we are placed in Christ. And in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Those old, sinful, lustful desires and pursuits, they are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Verse 18 describes this newness. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, before I got saved, I didn't care what God think. Before I got saved, I didn't praise the name of God. Before I got saved, I didn't want to hear about God. Before I got saved, I didn't read the word of God. Before I got saved, I didn't go to the house of God. I was not interested. But when I got saved, something happened. My life was altered. The things that I used to do, all of a sudden, I didn't feel right doing them. There was a conviction about it. And then those things that I didn't used to do, like, going to church, reading my Bible, hearing about Jesus, all of a sudden I had a desire to do those things. How do I explain that? I explain it by 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18. I became a new creation in Christ and all things became of God. I realized that now I was fulfilling my creative purpose, which was to be in relationship with God. And I had a newfound desire for the things of God. Who teaches a baby to crave its mother's milk? 
It is pre-programmed in them, is it not? It is part of their created design. Nobody has to convince them that they are hungry. There is something inside of them that calls out for it. Well, did you know that the Bible says, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby? I believe that when you and I get our lives changed by Christ, all of a sudden there is an appetite there that we never had before. It's not an appetite for sin. It's an appetite for the things of God. And you and I, if we allow the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us in that, He will cause us to crave and call for and seek out those things of God like worship and like His Word and like fellowship with other believers. This is where it begins. You can't do missions if you're not saved. You might be able to go and help find somebody, help somebody find some clean water. You might be able to go and deliver some food. You might be able to go and teach them to have a sustainable crop in their area. You might be able to go and, and set up a medical center and, and, and help them with their physical needs. But let me tell you, you can't do anything for their soul if you're not saved. If you don't know the great physician. If you don't know the bread of life. If you don't know the water of life. And so it begins with us becoming a new creation in Christ. But that's not where it ends. In this text, Paul doesn't say, hey, that's it. Uh, man, we have reached our destination. Game over. Praise the Lord. I just kick my feet up because now I am in and I don't have anything else to worry about. He says, no, along with that new creation, there comes a new constraint in Christ. Look at Verses 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul speaks from his own personal testimony and he says, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. This new constraint that the Apostle Paul describes is a constraint of love. Do you know what the old constraint was? The law. It was the law. In the Old Testament, God gave the law. The Jews had focused on the law. They were trying to constrain people by the law. Do this, don't do that. You've got to do this. There's a penalty for not doing that. There's a reward for doing this. And what we found is that the law was not sufficient to save. It was simply sufficient to bring us to the Savior. Because anybody who's tried to keep the law understands that they fail miserably at it. We don't need a court or a judge or a jury to condemn us. Our own conscience is sufficient to tell us we are not perfect. But this new constraint, this new constraint is not the law. It is the love of Christ Jesus said that this was one of the greatest expressions, one of the greatest motivations that uh, no greater love hath any man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. 
When you and I receive the gift of salvation, we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, all of a sudden we realize that he didn't save us simply by a word of his power. He didn't save us simply by the sweat of his brow, but he saved us by the sacrifice of his life that he willingly came to this earth to die on the cross for our sins. And he sacrificed himself for us. And it wasn't the nails that held him on the cross and it wasn't the soldiers that kept him there. In fact, the entire Roman Empire could not have kept Jesus on the cross it was his love that kept him on the cross it was his love for you it was his love for me and the apostle Paul says I find something constraining about that Paul's not the only one I think about old John John by the time he writes the gospel of John and first and second and third he's an old man he's had a lifetime to think about his experience with Christ and in first John chapter 3 he he erupts in the middle of this letter with this this call to focus on the love of Christ he says behold stop looking at everything else stop being distracted by other things and behold what manner of love the father hath bestowed upon us that little word that the apostle john uses in first john 3 1 what manner of love it means where is it from what is it like it is a foreign love it is an alien love it is an unprecedented love in fact that word is used in in some unique places in the bible when Jesus and his disciples went to the temple, his disciples said, look at what manner of stones are here. Do you realize there were no stones like the temple stones in all of Israel? I am told that archaeologists have uncovered some of those foundational stones and that there is one that is 12 foot tall and 44 feet long. One stone. There were no stones like that in all of Israel. They, they were alien. They were foreign i don't mean outer space alien i mean simply not found in their land in another place that word is used and it is when it is when the angel comes and speaks to mary and he says to her blessed art thou among women god has chosen you to be the vessel for the messiah and she says what what manner of salutation is this? What kind of greeting is this? Do you realize you can read your Bible? There's never been an angelic greeting like that anywhere else. Never did an angel come and announce that you're going to give birth to the Son of God. It is a one of a kind. But I think the greatest example of the impact of that word is in Matthew chapter 8 when the disciples are with Jesus on the boat and the storm flares up and they are scared to death because they think the boat is sinking and Jesus is asleep and they go and wake him up in a frantic panic and they say don't you care that we perish and Jesus calmly walks to the front of the boat and he says peace be still and immediately there is peace and the storm stops and the water flattens out and they say behold what manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him there's never been one like him before or after that's what John says about the love of God 
It's not like the love of your mom or your dad. It's not like the love of your husband or your wife. It's not like the love of anybody you've ever known because it is its own unique kind of love. It is the love of God. And John says, what kind of love is this? That God has chosen you and I to be his sons and daughters. And it becomes the greatest motivation in our life. We don't try to motivate people to go tell the gospel to to earn their way into heaven. There are some religions that do that. We don't tell people, hey, you ought to participate in this mission's offering because you might lose your salvation if you don't know. That's not the motivation. The motivation is the love of Christ. We ought to do this because Christ did that for us. The love that brought him to the cross is the love that ought to send us to the nations. Not only does... Paul described this new constraint in Christ as love, but he gives some irrefutable logic. He goes on and says this, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, we reason to this out. If one died for all, then we're all dead. That's logic. That's irrefutable logic. The fact that Jesus died for all means that all of us were dead. There was none righteous, no, not one. We had all gone out of the way. We had all turned to our own way like sheep. We had gone astray. We were all condemned by the judgment of God to face His wrath one day. Not one person could make it into heaven because they were all dead in their trespasses and sins. And the fact that Jesus died for all means that all of us were dead but here's the logical conclusion of that he goes on to say and that he died for all that they which live should not henceforth no longer live for themselves but live for him who died for them and rose again this new constraint in Christ is a love that brings me to the logical conclusion that if Jesus died for me, then I was dead in my trespasses and sin. I could not save myself. I could not revive myself. I could not do anything to help myself. He died for me. And the life that I now live is supposed to be lived for Christ. So let me ask you something. If I am now living for Christ, do you think Christ wants you to be involved in missions? And you'd have to be foolish to say, no, I don't think he wants that for me. Maybe my neighbor, they, they probably should be, but not me. No, the fact that Christ lived his life on mission that he was undeterred from his mission, that he completed his mission, that he paid the price for salvation reminds me that the life that, have, uh, that God has given to me is now a stewardship. It is a trust that I am supposed to live it for him. If I'm going to live it for him, I have to be concerned. I have to participate in getting the gospel to the world. But then we find that this new constraint also helps us accept a new commission in Christ. Look at verses 18 through 20. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself. Let let me just point something out to you. 
there is a form of this word reconciled that is used five times in this text. Uh, reconcile means to bring together, right? If you are parted because of irreconcilable differences, it means you cannot come together in agreement. And so this word five times is used reconciled. It means that we were brought together or brought in close proximity. Verse 18, and all things are of Christ who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation to wit so that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Understand this, Christ did the work of reconciliation. He's the only one who could. He's the only one. There's one mediator between God and men. It is the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself, his life, a ransom for all. Jesus is the mediator who was able to reconcile these two estranged parties. That is, a sovereign, holy God and a sinful, rebellious people. And so Christ did the work of reconciliation. We're not called to do the work. We're not called to die on the cross. We're not called to shed our blood in some sort of substitutional atonement. Only Jesus could do that, and Jesus did that. In John 19.30, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. It was finished, the work of reconciliation, so that now people can draw near to God. The church has the word of reconciliation. Did you notice that? He committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Before Jesus left his disciples, he said something like this in Matthew 28, all powers given unto me in heaven and earth, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. That is called the Great Commission, and it was given to the church collectively. And so the church is supposed to be about the Great Commission, getting the gospel to the entire world. But it goes one layer deeper than that, and that is Christians are witnesses of reconciliation. Paul said we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you through us. We come in Christ's stead. When Christ was here, he went through every village and town, healing and restoring and preaching the gospel. And when he left, he gave you and I as Christians the responsibility to preach and teach and witness of reconciliation. Acts 1.8 says this, but you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me in both Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost. I would say to you that that has an individual implication. He's speaking to those who receive the Holy Ghost. And the last time I read my Bible, every Christian who is a Christian received the Holy Ghost the very moment they got saved. And so it is that Holy Spirit within you that God has given 
to power you and empower you to be a witness in your hometown, in your neighboring towns, in your homeland, and in the foreign lands. But the question is, how can I do that? I can't be in Atkins and Africa at the same time. And the wonderful design of God is that God has a plan for reaching the whole world. We are his plan. There is no plan B with God. It is us. It is the church. It is individual Christians. Christ saved us. Christ changed us. Christ constrains us. And he commissioned us for the work of missions. We have everything that we need to accomplish our assignment. You and I are not lacking anything. We can accomplish the assignment. We can get the gospel to the entire world. We can make sure that everybody hears. The only question is, are we doing our part to draw the lost near to God? I'll leave you with this thought. There are really only two positions you can have in missions. You either go or you send. You cannot find any other categories when it comes to missions. There are no bystanders. There are no fence setters. There are no spectators. Everybody is classified in one of two classes. You are either going or you are sending. And so if you're here today and God hasn't called you to go to the foreign land, then guess what your position is? It is to send. And to send a missionary is not to stand on the docks and say, Bon voyage. I'm praying for you to have a good trip. To send means not only do we support them in our prayers, but we support them financially so that they can go live on that field and preach the gospel and make disciples. And so let us... Be the instruments that God uses to help draw those who are far from him, near to him, and reconcile them to him. Would you bow with me? So we bow our heads for just a moment. I want you to take it all in. I want you to just block everything else out for a moment. Forget about all the stuff that's on your plate and all the things that distract you and for just a moment think about the fact that there is a lost world out there that there are millions and billions of people who if they die today they go to hell and in some ways we are the only thing that is standing between them and hell and if we are not called to make that sacrifice of going then certainly we are called to make the sacrifice of sending. What can you give to help others go? Oh Lord, I do thank you so much that you still call people to the mission field. I thank you that you place an inexplicable compulsion in the heart of some people to leave their home and their family and their native land to go live in a foreign environment and to spend their days trying to reach people that they would never meet otherwise. But Father, I also pray that your Holy Spirit would do that divine work of compelling us to give so that others can go. 
Lord, may we not just sit back and take pride in what our convention of churches has been able to do over the years. But may we realize that right now there are souls hanging in the balance who need a gospel missionary to share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. And we are the ones who can help them go. God, I pray that you would just speak to us this week. Let us know what it is that you would have us to give. And I pray that every one of us would do our part for worldwide missions. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.